today on 2C Vans. So many interesting parts to what you do, but what are your what are your favorite um, things that you get to do in your job? I think that this is more related to the science itself. Like I like to do science. I like to understand how things work, and and sometimes we are so uh, focused on our research hypothesis, those standard ones that we set when we are writing a proposal or something. Mm -hmm. And when you are in the middle of the work, we are doing like uh, analyzing results and data and things, something that you are not expecting, you will start to see that you'll find something that you are not expecting. Mm -hmm. I would say like uh, people say that like a Eureka moment. Uh, yeah, the Eureka moment. Yeah. Eureka, yeah. 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 Hello and welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science, conser conservation, and education here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. I'm Haley Rutger. And I am Joe Nicholson. And proof that the name is too long is you kind of muffed it there a little bit. <laughs> That's probably the first time I have messed up in like months. Come on. Come okay, on. Okay, I'll give you that. Come on, I've been doing good. Well, we have a wonderful guest here today. Uh, can you tell us your name and title, please? Yes, for sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Flavio Ribeiro. And I'm a postdoctoral scientist at MOAT, basically working at MAP uh, with aquaculture fish and fisheries team. And when you what say is MAP, MAP, yeah. yeah what is, what yeah, is MAP? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. MAP stands for MOAT Aquaculture Park. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very good. So now I do understand. That, that, <laughs> Sorry for that. That big campus where we do all of this research on raising fish and other aquatic organisms for yes. lots of different purposes. So Flavia, where are you from and how did you get into the field of aquaculture? Okay, so I'm from a small town. I was born and raised in a small town in the middle of um, South Brazil. Nice. Um, basically how I end up in the aquaculture field. Um, I, I was always fascinated by the ocean and I decided to enroll in the oceanography degree and then everything goes with the flow. Things are starting to popping up, opportunities to get involved in different uh, research projects and by the end of my degree I decided to start with a master degree in the ocean on aquaculture. And then uh, you went with the flow. Um, yeah. it, so where you were growing up, were you near the ocean when you were growing up? No, it was in the, in the countryside, I would say, like in the middle of uh, Paraná, as I stayed in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So, but I was always fascinated during the summer times when I was going to the, to the beaches and spending the holidays with the family. And that really makes me to decide to, to, pursue a career on oceanography degree. Now, what, you, univer what university were you at? It was Univali. It is, um, the, uh, it is in Santa Catarina. Okay. In Itajaí. It is, um, it is in the coastline in the south, in south part of Brazil. So, so at, at this time... Is, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was just like a, uh, that was back in 1998 and we just have three main universities uh, providing that kind of uh, degree in Brazil. So it was really interesting. It was something new at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
but you, you're, if I may say so, you're a relatively young guy, so. Oh, I'm not really. <laughs> or either that or you look young. You so, look I got some gray hair here. You got some, okay, okay. That, that's from having a kid, man. That's yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> these, these two guys were, uh, were, were commiserating and sharing the joy of having kiddos. So, yeah. so were the... Where you went to school, were the oceans really, really, really beautiful? What does it? What does that coast look like down there? Yeah, we got really nice beaches down there. It is uh, there is it is different because we have mountains and we have uh, rocks, uh, mountains like uh, it is different different kind of beaches everywhere. We got really clean water as well. We can go diving. We can go snorkeling surfing as well all of these just attract me when i was a teenager so um, yeah the, be just... the beaches do tend to attract the teenagers <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh and the beaches down there are phenomenal from what i understand yeah, yeah. i just wanted to... oh go ahead i'm sorry i just have very different kinds of beaches in brazil we have in the north part we have very sandy beaches and in the, in the south part we have like rock beach rocky yeah yeah. Cool, cool. So what's your first uh, aquaculture research projects that you got to work on? Were they in Brazil or you later went to Australia? Where did you first start to actually conduct conduct research as part of your academic career? Yeah, I will say was during, it's still during my bachelor degree, I started to develop an honors uh, project on sea urchin. So we are basically that was the 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 first time I was exposed to like a research environment. So I really liked the idea of uh, understanding things that we nobody knows before. So then uh, that leads me to getting to the marine fish, which was an aquaculture more uh, research orientated degree, and everything started to work from that point onwards. What? What drew you to, uh, you said sea urchins, right? Sea urchins, yeah. Yeah, what, what drew you to that? Uh, something new, I would say. Like uh, I was in the, I always like to take challenges. And okay, so we don't have a sea urchin aquaculture at that time, just in Japan, I, I would say. And okay, let's try. We have a sea urchin species here. A lot mm -hmm. of uh, very abundant in the rocky uh, beaches in south of Brazil and okay let's try to see if we can put them in tanks and see if they can if, uh, develop in the uh, in, in tanks and yeah. testing different diets and testing different environmental conditions cool. and yeah. did, did you have to uh, taste the uh, what, do, what do we eat out of the sea urchins? Is it the gonads? Uh, yes exactly oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> Yeah, it is very tasty and it is very high value valued as well. Like, uh, yeah, for the Japanese, yes, Japanese market. Yeah, oh, totally, yeah. totally. Well, I I never imagined it as being tasty, but that's probably because I come from the U.S. and we just don't eat a lot of sea urchin over here. Yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. I opened my so eyes. The, so then you moved from sea urchin to which fish next? Uh yeah, I started to work with snooks in Brazil. Yeah, the first time I, I was exposed to snook hearing culture. Nice. And I remember from your resume, it was the fat snook. That's a species of snook? Yes, 
we uh, fat is nuke is much more easy to spawn than in tanks in captivity. So that was the first species we are working in Brazil. And Much like the fat guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. We, th th that was what we have available at the time. We are starting with common snook there as well. But we were struggling to make them spawning in captivity. So Are common snook um, common or, or natural to Brazil? They are. They are. Really? Spread. Yeah. That, huh. It is the south limit of uh, their occurrence, I would say, like Florianopolis in the place I, I was doing my my master. That is the, the, I would say, the threshold of their distribution across the Atlantic. Yeah, because they're more up, tropical, correct? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And up yeah. here, we're closer to that. Nor up here in Florida, we're closer to the northern threshold edge exactly yeah. we are really in the threshold oh, yeah. look, uh, mm -hmm. or making it work so you talked about uh i was looking through your your research history and you also talked about a species called barramundi and that was in australia how did you get there <laughs> oh yeah that is yeah uh as i said before like i like challenges so i like to work with hard hard to hear species and when i was working with this nook i got in contact with a guy in australia with or working with uh, barramundi and we're in the same topics and i discussed with uh, some methodology methodological approaches in my master and by the end of my master, I just, okay, so let's try to find uh, something to work together. And, and I discuss, I present him two or three topics of my research interest. And okay, let's try to, let's uh, work on cannibalism in Barramundi and kingfish as well. So I end up getting a tuition fee waiver and a scholarship. And then, then I end up in Australia working with Barramundi. Just like that, wow. right? Yeah, yeah. Can, can you describe a Barramundi to somebody who's never seen one? What, would it, what does it look like? They're yeah, pretty. it is a very interesting fish species, very similar actually with snook and snooks. Oh. Uh, a couple of years ago, they were in the same family actually, but right now they split the families and they have different, yeah, they are very close relatively. Yeah. Yeah, so Bermuda is very popular actually in Australia and Asia, and they are developing their hearing aquaculture technology for over 20 years right now. And it is very popular both for aquaculture and fisheries, as snook well, here. It, it has a, a bigger bottom lip than upper lip, correct? Exactly. I think almost, that's almost like a tarpon. Yeah, yeah, maybe. It is even li uh, deeper, I've, I would say. It is. Uh, the, the body shape is pretty similar to a mix of tarpon and snooks, yeah. but uh, it is maybe in the middle of these two species. And they can out. leap out of the water really high too, right? Yeah, it is a very popular gaming fish. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking up a picture of a barramundi for myself, and it's, wow, they get big. And they, they do have like that kind of sloping forehead like a snook does, and they have that underbite. Um, yeah. 
they look to mm. me they look like a thicker version of like what a snook looks like <laughs> yeah yeah maybe that's a good approach <laughs> yeah, that's my layman's approach but really cool so you talked about them having cannibalistic behavior i know that fish are, are not like us and sometimes they'll eat other fish a little bit indiscriminately including other fish of the same species right Exactly. Cannibalism is exactly that. They are eating the same species. And in aquaculture, this is a big problem, actually, because uh, you are in the wild. Fish are, are experiencing a lot of different species. They are exposed to different species. So other species will become their target prey almost naturally. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the tanks, we just have one species there. So that will become the first prey if you are not providing the right environment for them to evolve. Yeah, and so, unlike, unlike in nature, we, we fish are supposed to eat the other fish because yeah. that's the ecosystem. In aquaculture, we're trying to make sure all these fish make it to maturity without being eaten because there's a purpose. Either we're restoring the environment or we're cultivating food. So that's yeah. so we have to deal with that with that weird behavior that that is kind of natural to the fish. <laughs> yeah, yes. That is cannibalism. Is actually we can see that in uh, uh, happening. We have some reports of some. This is actually a natural uh, behavior, but it is just exacerbated in the aquaculture settings. So yeah, it's a it's a natural behavior that it's just yeah, like you say, it just is more prevalent when they're all confined in aquaculture. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because so that's you... I I remember uh, uh, Dr. Ryan Schlesser uh, talking a little bit about that when yeah. uh, we were we were releasing snook. What was it last fall? I think. Yeah. So, like, yeah. what did? How did you do research to see if there are ways to address that? <laughs> yeah, basically, we need to everything that we are trying to do. It it is basically we need to understand what is going on. It is not. I, I like. I don't like the approach of testing and uh, trying and making errors and there is two ways you can do research one is understanding uh, what is going on and the other one is trying and, and advancing the research on that i like the idea of knowing what we are doing and basically raising the fundamental questions like what is the size limitation they uh they need to to, to exercise cannibalism, to, uh, what is the physiological behind cannibalism, what is the bioenergy, what they are cannibalizing each other, their behavior, and addressing those questions give us enough information to tackle the, the issue in a very efficient way. Do yeah. we have any of that information yet as far as like at what size they stop cannibalizing each other or anything like that? Do you mean for snook? For snook, yeah, for common snook. We are starting to get in the, those information. Last year, I ran a, a specific trial in order to investigate what is the size limitation for cannibalism in the snook. And it is very similar to Barramundi. And in my PhD back in Australia, I, I, I raised all of those questions. And it seems very similar to snook as well. We can apply much of the work I did in my PhD for snook as well. Oh, that's uh, cool. It just, yeah. You know, if I were to ha hazard a guess as a non-scientist, I'd be like, eh, when they're too big to fit in the other one's mouth. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly. that's the first point. I think the uh, this is true for marine fish species because they start to cannibalize when they are early juvenile. Mm. And there is a couple of freshwater species. Uh, they They have such a very fast development during the larval period. 
and they need a very high energetic uh, prey and food and 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 they develop in much faster way so the size variation starts to grow much faster and cannibalism starts to happen early in the in the larval stages as well oh, interesting yeah well, um, so we talked about some of the history that's brought you here, and all along we've kind of been hinting at the fact that you're here working with our common snook that live in Florida that our fishermen love so much. And um, mm. so can you tell us, like, what, what are all of your current projects and goals working at Moat Aquaculture Research Park? <laughs> I think what she's trying to say is, hey, spill the beans, man. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think the first point where I was uh, like emerging research interesting uh, interests here, it is basically in the, in, the, in the cannibalism. So it is really the thing that I can re uh, contribute here. And then we are tackling all of these issues here. In the last production run, we did a really good job just by um changing the way we are size grading the fish so we doubled the, our production run and right now we have around 10,000 fish in the tanks there ready for release so it is basically something that we did in the early stages and and by size grading them better that, um, means, that means that you sort them differently based on their measurements, like into different tanks. Because I know that you would you would already be sorting them based on size to a degree, but you kind of refined that. We are refining that because at in the previous stages we are size grading them by eyes, and even we didn't have the threshold. So what is the size variation we can keep in the tanks in our avoid? Right now, we are applying that knowledge and using bar graders and, and new technique, we can do the size grading more efficiently as well. Mm -hmm. So we can, we are about to run an experiment right now to, in, in order to see how frequently we need to size grading them in order to keep the, the, the cannibalism not going on in the tank. What, what is the, uh, but I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what is the uh, uh, the, the stages now, uh, how long in between size gradings is it now? We are trying to do that every two weeks. The perfect scenario will be doing that every two weeks because they have a very, uh, Snook have a very, I would say, social hierarchy. So some fish will will dominate the feeding sites. And yeah, some are the boss and some are the, yeah. Exactly, so they will always grow in a faster way and that makes the size variation increase in the tank. So that gives the opportunity for them to start to prey on the siblings. Well, does some of the, uh, have, are you guys looking into any of this? Does some of the cannibalism help to weed out the, uh, the genetic mute, mutants or the, uh, the weak? The weaker of the snook so that the stronger survive yeah uh yes i think so because when the the, the cannibalism start to really impacting the population during the transition transition from live feed to uh, inert diets some fish will move faster and some fish will stay behind mm -hmm. uh, and that everything starts to uh, appear and it seems there is a correlation between those fish the 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 dominant ones they will start to get inert diets faster mm -hmm. and they will have higher um, behavior uh, predatory uh, 
predatory behavior, mm. and they will be the more uh, robust fish. Mm. So the weak ones will stay behind and they will disappear. Yeah, they get they get picked off. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question, Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So and so, you said a bunch of the snook that you helped to size grade are already ready for release. Did I hear that right? Yes. Yeah, Great. they are about to be released. We're just waiting a little bit because all of these social di distance we are facing right now. Yeah. yeah. And yes. then I'd, I'd love to come out and uh, film that release as well. Um, yep. Are you guys doing that with anybody or, or is this just all moat? This one is just mode. Yeah, we don't have. Uh, yeah, it is a FWC contract we have, so we are we have this commitment to release at least five thousand fish every year. Yeah. And yep, this year we are doing better than that. We are releasing probably around eight thousand fish, a little oh, over nice. that. Yeah. Nice, very nice. That that allowed us to tackle different strategies, uh, release strategies as well. Yeah. Oh, really? It's, yeah, it's yeah. like amazing that you you and Dr. Ryan Schlesser runs the program now. You guys have have research going on at every step of the raising and releasing process, and you're constantly trying to optimize this with kind of snook as as I understand a sort of model fish, so that you can learn about the best ways to do this and then tell other people about it. Right. <laughs> exactly. That is our our main research goals here, it is like increasing the production in the hatchery and also improving their survival after release because this is one of the very challenging uh, research questions we have. Well, and they've always been a tough one to, uh, to raise in aquaculture. Um, primarily, I think, because of that, uh, the uh, cannibalism and the, uh, the difficulty reaching a certain size limit you know, getting them to that size stage, um, at least from the past. There's so much going on, seen. Joe. There's a, and there's also yeah. like making the larval survival better when they're itty bitty. We have, oh, some, yeah. we have Dr. Tarnecki working on that. We've got all sorts so of much going on. <laughs> yeah, it is always, every time we are improving in one aspect, we are facing a new a challenging question as well. Find something new, yeah. Yeah. We, we, the, the problem right now is basically that we are improving our, our larval hearing, like uh, ending up with much more fish in the tanks. And the high density that we are facing in the tanks are promoting cannibalism, are promoting fish deformities, and that's new questions we need to address right now. Yep. Wow. Well, well these, are, these are cool new questions, though. You yeah, like challenges. Of you're you're a guy who likes a good challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's our our job, right? Yeah. yeah, that is science, man. Yeah. So I had a question for you about you know, you talked earlier about having to understand what's going on before you try new steps to raise the fish better. So why do you have to tell us about the need to understand how fish would live out in the ocean? Um why do you need to know about that in order to do a good job in aquaculture? Um, I think we need to respect the fish. We know that we are promoting artificial environment in the tanks. So, and these in artificial environment are exposing the fish to express abnormal behavior. And that makes the, their struggle for life. Uh, especially cannibalism, for example, we are promoting artificial conditions that are making them express abnormal behavior they're normally doing in the, in the, in the wild. Uh, 
So if we understand how the things uh, happen in the wild, we can try to mimic that one that as the best as we can in the in the hearing environment. So we is basically respecting the fish in the, in the tank. Like That's that. a really cool approach, man. Yeah. Respect the fish. Love that. Respect the fish. That would be a cool t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to respect the, the, the nature, right? Yep. Oh, absolutely. They're, we are part of it. We are. Yeah, we? and more people need to understand that. Yeah. And the, the snook are such a big part of our Florida fisheries. So even if you don't know that much about ecology, you might know something about fishing and you might realize that if we respect them, we're going to keep our fisheries around. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my son j- caught his first snook um, about three weeks ago, his first snook ever. Wow. And when I, when I told him that uh, we were – I was doing a podcast today with a, a motor aquaculture guy that deals with snook. He's like, tell him to put more snook out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are going to put around 8,000 fish in the <laughs> next weeks. <laughs> uh, I'll tell him. Yep. Your son's going to be going to be jazz. He's going to love that. He'll so, be happy. In a, I, if, if I were working in your field, there's so many interesting parts to what you do, but what are your, what are your favorite um, things that you get to do in your job? Um, I think that this is more related to the science itself. Like I like to do science. I like to understand how the things works, and and sometimes we are so uh, focused on our research hypotheses, those standard ones that we set when we are writing a proposal or something. Mm-hmm. And when we are in the middle of the work, we are doing like uh, analyzing results and data and things, something that you are not expecting you will start to see that you'll find something that you are not expecting. Mm-hmm. I would say like uh, people say that like a Eureka moment. Uh, yeah, the Eureka moment. Yeah. Eureka, yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly, these are the best moments in a life of a research life. So when something that you are not expecting happen and you and you, are expect, and you find it, and it's very interesting. It's that mind blown thing yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you gotten to have any eureka moments so far in your career <laughs> uh maybe uh, when I, my pg i was um to uh, to tackle the the the, the problem with uh, when we are actually estimating the maximum prey size for a cannibal for example when i was working with bermudi I was developing the models. Basically, we measured the mouth size, the body shape of the fish, and working with this data, we can predict building models to predict the maximum prey size for different pre- uh, cannibal sizes. Mm-hmm. And, but I always validate those models with empirical data as well, like uh, specific trials where I challenge different sizes of cannibals with different sizes of prey. Mm-hmm. And well, when I was doing this analysis in my PG, uh, my model was predicting the cannibals could ingest up to 60% of their sizes, but my empirical results were showing that they could ingest even more uh, larger prey, like 80% of their size. So what is going on here? And, and I was back to, this, to that data, trying to find different ways to analyze it. And 
but what if, uh, and I was, I, I noticed I was, all the modules were developed based on the average values of the body parts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but uh, what, what if the cannibals that were really preying on larger prey in the, in the predation trials were like a, a phenotype cannibalish fish? Uh, a fish with, a, for example, larger mouth. So mm -hmm. I went back to my data set and I saw let's and I I could identify a very uh, high variability in the and the and the mouth size of the fish, and so I I end up getting the top ten percent uh, like the the larger mouth size from the data set, and developed the model based on that. And when I cross validated with my empirical results, wow, that matched perfectly. And so that's the point. So uh, that was really exciting because I, I was struggling to find, uh, to tell the story what was going on. And by quickly thinking and looking through the data in different ways, I definitely managed to to find the story how how everything was going on. Somebody, and that leads somebody in there had a really big mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we know we know we are exposing some fish will have. Um, genetic uh, factor that are more prone to exercise cannibalism mm. in the population and they will develop a higher uh, different uh, body shapes and that will express in the, their behavior as well so this is really interesting that leads me to in the next project in back in brazil uh, i applied the same concept the same approach and i i i measured the mouth size of the fish they they, they were uh, ingesting the larger prey and that, that I found a correlation between that as well. So it's very interesting. So one question will give you a lot of more questions in the future. Are you continuing with any of that uh, research? I'm trying to do that every species I'm working with. Um, I'm still analyzing the, these, these samples in this loop here. Maybe I can find something similar here and see if I can move on that position as well yeah that'd be cool to find out if that's happening here too yeah yeah since the barramundi so you know similar to the, they are the similar. Yeah. yeah and especially because they we have a very different growth variability in the and the fish and this is probably something showing that there is some genetic variation in the, in the fish see that's yeah. why we got you here man because yeah. <laughs> not not all snook or barramundi are alike and that could could be a big deal if we you know if we miss it then we're missing something important deciding you know who might be able to eat their their cousin over there <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. yep new people new ideas that's always yeah. a good thing yeah merging yeah, merging research interesting this is always yeah. a good point yep. yeah well so well, what cool. did, what did we forget to ask you today is there anything else that you want to share from your career or your your work at moat that that we didn't think of <laughs> Highlight that cannibalism is a big problem. Actually, we have in the in like uh, we we discuss here about the barramundi and snook, but we have a very high cannibalism rates in other species as well. Like in uh, in Brazil, back in Brazil, in my previous postdoc, I was working with uh, native fish with potential for aquaculture, and got we could see a very high cannibalism happening in uh, cannibalism happening on in those species. And this is related uh, also to the, 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 the fact that um, 
when we are starting with a new species, when we don't have the, the, the conditions already, uh, the technology already developed, uh, we, we normally put a very challenging environment for those fish because we don't have the right nutrition, the right feeding, and the right prey for them. And that really stimulates the, the cannibalism. And so, I, for example, one of the species I was working with, we could lose up to 90% of the population in just 10 days. Whoa. Uh, that's a huge impact. Whoa, yeah, that it is. is. Huge. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's like, you're, where'd all my fish go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You go home and the next day, you where is the fish? <laughs> <laughs> Something happened. Yeah. Did a bird come in here last night? Yeah. <laughs> there are a few really satisfied other fish left over. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. There are a few fat fish in the tank, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, you could see like a dorado is a very voracious species in the early larval stage. They they grow really really fast, so we really? need to provide yeah. We need to provide the the right feeding, and people uh, the the only way to do that is feeding them with other fish species, like other larval species. People are doing that in tuna as well, because tuna is another problem. They don't oh. accept very well like the normal live feed we normally do in the aquaculture. So they are doing using other species like uh, sea bream and kingfish and to feed the tuna larvae. Really? They're using, wow, those larval fish to, to feed tuna and dorado? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I didn't know that's that. the only the only way to 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 overcome the problem actually yeah Holy moly. and i and we're not going to get all the way into it today but aqua feeds are such a big field of study dr oh, yeah. main works on them and not for those species that you just named flavio but like for other species there's there is still a certain amount of um other fish that have to be fed into aquaculture so there there's always this conversation about how can we either reduce that or find sustainable sources of yeah. it that's a big part of the whole sustainable aquaculture model is how do we make oh, yeah. that make sure you know yeah, I was about this this paper on Dorado. Uh, um, we are about to pu publish it right now, and one of the comments was exactly on that. Uh, so, do you mm. think it is profitable to feed fish in? A, and I think maybe uh, economically thinking, it may be. But in terms of uh, sustainability or animal welfare as well, it may not. It will not be very well received by the public. So, we need to make sure we are we are advancing our hearing technology uh, in terms of aqua feeds and alternative fee food as well for, for the larvae because this is not the right way to feeding fish term. with fish yeah. yeah and the the bottom line is respect the fish respect, respect the fish, the fish. Yeah, exactly there's that t-shirt <laughs> yeah well, thank you so much for, for coming on today, giving us a new t-shirt slogan and mm -hmm. explaining your really cool research projects that I, I think will make aquaculture work better. So it's been great. Yeah. Thank you, Haley. And lo thank looking you. forward to meeting you in person at some point after all this is over, man. Yeah. Yeah. It is just like we are pretty much busy at MAP and it is hard to come to the city island. But yeah, we are some sometime around here. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Yep. It was a pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Two C Fans. And we'll see Haley? you soon. Yeah, we'll see you soon for the next episode of Two C Fans. You never know what, uh, what t-shirt slogan we'll come up with next. <laughs> 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 All next right. Time, we'll see you later. Respect the fish. We'll see you next time.